1: Well, hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole. And I gotta say, this watering hole looks a little bit different. It's, it's a, there's a lot more glow to it. And, uh, everything seems to be more of an, in an, in a wire frame. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it's still somewhat 3D, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm so glad though that I have a new voice here to help me figure this out. And thankfully he fights for the user's. None other than Zachary Fruling. How are you, Zach?
0: Good. Greetings programs. I do fight for the users. When I when I was a kid, uh greetings programs was like the universal geek greeting. So I haven't said it in so many years, but greetings programs. <laughs> nice to be here. That's Thanks for funny. having me here, man. So
1: so you knew that somebody was a geek if they said uh, you know, greetings programs and or I'm sure uh left you with live long and prosper, you know, uh, so, or may the force be with you. There were so many great geek phrases to let the line. Yeah.
0: As the case may be. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
1: To let you know, uh, that, uh, you were part of the club. Um, and so, well, I'm so excited to have you here as a part of the 602 club. And I can't wait to, to be able to dive into something that we've never covered here before, which is the original Tron, which of course, Led to uh, Tron Legacy, which, as I've mentioned before here many times, deserves uh, a sequel and has never got one. I do not know why. Um, and of course, they have the new Light Cycle ride at uh, Disney World uh, these days, which I've heard is incredible, and would really love to get a chance to to be able to actually ride one day. Uh, but. We're going to be diving into to the film, and I'm so excited to talk about it with you, Zach. But before we do all that, just a quick reminder to everyone, of course, you know, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we would appreciate it uh, if you did subscribe wherever you're listening, and that way you'll get the show as soon as it drops. Of course, you can also uh, give us star ratings and reviews on, like, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which would help the show grow. It's, it's great. It's a digital word of mouth, makes a huge difference, which is a great place for you to follow us on things like Twitter or Instagram. We've got the 602 Club on Twitter. We've got the 602 Club, TFM on Instagram. We're, of course, on Facebook with the entire network over at facebook.com slash Trek FM. You can also find us online at Trek FM. And one of the most important things that you can do in all honesty is to make sure that the network keeps coming to you each and every week. And the best place to do that is over at Patreon at patreon.com slash Trek FM by supporting us and and making sure that we can keep all of this content coming to you. We can't do that alone. And uh, it does cost quite a bit to do this. So we would love it if you would go over there and support us in that way. So. Zach, you mentioned, uh, and I think this is a great way to start, uh, that this was code, you know, for, (laughs) no pun intended, but this was code for for geeks to be able to greet uh, one another. And so what was your first introduction to the world of Tron?
0: Yeah, you know, before I dive in, I want to thank you for having me here. It's been a couple of years since I've podcasted. Um, So that's my first time behind the microphone in a couple of years, but it's like riding a bike or like riding a light cycle. So, uh, I'm sure I'll, uh, dive right back in. Uh, it's easy to forget. Those are, we're old, you know, man We're not part of the it's young true. generation. We're, we're old now. We're middle-aged. <laughs> we're old enough to remember the 1980s, right? This is, these are like first-hand memories for us. And this was probably, uh, the geekiest movie of the 80s. I, I can't imagine a geekier movie than the 80s. This is about as abstract and impenetrable and geeky as it comes. Um, my first memory of watching Tron. Um, I I can't speak to whether it's actually my first time watching. I know I didn't see it in the theaters. What I, what I think happened is that when I was a little kid, I remember we had one of those set top cable boxes and we had the Disney channel. And I was desperately annoyed that my my parents got rid of the uh, of the cable box at some point. And I wanted the Disney Channel back so bad, and it's because I wanted to watch Tron on the <laughs> Disney Channel. And it was one of those like you know wood grain set top boxes oh, yes. with red LED, oh, yes. red LED uh, numbers on the front. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, this was my absolute favorite movie when I was a little kid, and I wanted to watch it on the Disney Channel. So I don't know how many times I watched it. I know at least a couple. But, uh, yeah, this was my favorite movie. But it was – I didn't see it in the theater. It was definitely – I was probably five years old, circa 1983, 1984, somewhere in there, sitting in the living room in our console television, woodgrain console television, watching this on uh, on the Disney Channel.
1: So, what's really interesting, I think is that uh you're a couple years older than i am and so and and especially uh for me uh the house that that I grew up in you know we did not have cable, and you know the things that we saw were things that we could uh say rent from a blockbuster or uh, more than more than anything uh was was uh, get from the library you remember in the library used to have uh v h s tapes that you could uh, get out from there and you know we grew up watching lots of old films um many black and white movies so i always appreciated that but i didn't get to see a lot of stuff that came out like at the time and uh, you know tron was something too that we just we never really saw and so for me i didn't see the original tron until i think it's either before or after Tron Legacy, and I think it was right before I was able to find like a copy where you could rent it and watch it, so then I was ready because I wanted to, you know, kind of understand if there was any connection, I wanted to be able to understand that those two things uh, and how they went together. So, and then of course, uh, when Tron Legacy came out, the only way that you could get the original Tron film uh, on like a Blu-ray was they did a set. And it had both of them. And so I bought that set so that I could have the, the original Tron movie on, on Blu-ray. And I still have that set. So uh, to me, this was not something I ended up growing up with. But I knew it, right? Like, because like you said, there are all these things that kind of became a part of like Greek geek culture that um, were just almost ubiquitous. Like they're, they're, they're so ingrained in it. Like, greetings programs or end of line or all of these type of things and um and so and then of course you know uh one of the most interesting parts of this is i think you know this movie does uh a fascinating job of kind of mirroring real life outside of the the digital aspect of where this movie takes place uh inside the computer you know with the programs but like you know, I, I was so surprised rewatching this and how much this movie kind of takes a lot of the actual computer history, especially with things like Apple, and kind of utilizes that type of storytelling. You know, Dillinger is basically a Steve Jobs type who, you know, relegates Wozniak to the sidelines and takes credit for things he may or may not even have done. Like, that part, I was like, oh my gosh, this... This actually these guys must have been a part of that the writers in some way are just been aware of it because that's crazy.
0: So so who is Wozniak? Is it Flynn or is it uh is it uh Walter, the the guy who started the company in his garage?
1: See, I'm thinking that uh, Wozniak is actually a, a basically both of them, you know? Um because they they represent both sides of that. Uh and so but you know, I think In many ways, Walter feels like the was, you know, when you when you see what Dillinger has done to him um, and the way that he's he's basically taken over the company, relegated any of the things that he's done to the sidelines uh, and made it seem like his contributions are almost irrelevant, even though. They're completely relevant because everything
0: is built on what he created. I guess I had a slightly different take on the Steve Jobs interpretation. So much of early computer history is tied to 1960s, 1970s, early 1980s counterculture. And I kind of associate the Flynn character with his uh, uh, irreverence, <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, with, with the kind of irreverence that you see in Steve Jobs. That part of Steve Jobs' personality, not the business mm. aspect, but the, the counterculture I irreverence aspect. I,
1: but I think that's a great point. I actually think that's an excellent point because I think what it does is is that it shows all the different sides of these early characters that were involved. And in many ways, I think what we've done is that this movie has kind of split parts of their personalities into one representational person uh,
0: so that – And put them back together again, like taking the personality aspects, yes, separated them, yes. put them back together and given you uh, – mishmashes of these personality traits that that aren't exactly like the original but are reminiscent of it.
1: Yes. No, I think you're 100% correct in that. So, and what I think it does is then it allows you to be to be able to have characters who are in some ways kind of more black and white in their representation of like what they represent for the film and the messages of the film, you know, um because Obviously, you know, anybody who who's studied, uh, you know, Apple computing or or Steve Jobs himself, if you read Walter Isingston's biography of him, Um, I have. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He's he's a very complicated guy. Right. And um, so I think by doing this, by kind of splitting the personalities, it allows you to have Flynn basically be the hero. Right. And it allows somebody like Dillinger to just be the villain and it's uh, it's
0: an it's an archetype you get you know what you get are archetypes but but a new kind of archetype because these archetypes weren't the kind of archetypes that you get in classic literature to some extent they are you still have a hero character but these are the new heroes of the late 20th century right
1: yeah exactly um and i i think that you know that that really kind of goes to something that i think we'll probably dive into much more a little bit later but i mean it really goes to the way in which Flynn talks about himself, which is um, i'm just a guy making it up as I go along, you know and 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 so and and that's what all of these inventors are right they're they're just they got an idea and then they put it together and see what happens right it's not creating
0: for its own sake and you know any real creative creates because they love it
1: exactly there's and there's no you know master plan to it right you know there
0: there's no master control exactly
1: (laughs) uh well and and in that way too like you know i think it shows you know these guys are human they're not in any way, shape or form, gods, right, you you, you know, um, and and that human creation is is a totally different type of creation, right, because we don't have in any kind of way, like a master plan. Uh, So no, I, I think that was, was really interesting. So another part where this really mirrored real life, though, is that, you know, I was, I was really kind of fascinated in the way in which You know, the master control program, which started off as just a a master chess program uh, and turns itself into something else. uh, I I think one of the the brilliances of this film is is the way in which it, it was able to predict the fact that the things that we created in the computer, whereas they may never become Skynet. They can still become too smart for their own good and be begin to enslave us in different ways. Uh, you know, I, I specifically think of like social media algorithms, you know. I mean, there's whole studies, there's whole documentaries based on the idea of the way that these social media algorithms have become so smart that they can Figure out exactly what it is that you want to see, and then they just feed you that over and over again until you become stuck in a loop that you can't get out of. You, you, you basically enslave people to that, and you can begin to rewrite the way somebody thinks because they only see one point of view. Uh, and so the, the, that idea, I think, is so fascinating that they were able to tap into
0: I think one of the things that fascinates me about Tron, again, because I, I lived through it and so did you to some extent. I'm a little older than you, but so much of this movie is tied to the how to put it, the the culture of the 70s and 80s. You know, there's the there's the milita- military-industrial complex going on and people are a bit afraid of that we've got any new leap in technology people are going to there's going to be some technophobia associated with it i mean hell people people thought the telegraph was going to be the end of the world in the mid 1800s <laughs> right every time there's a leap in technology it's mystical and it's magical and it's empowering but there's also this latent fear that goes along with it and this movie seems to tap in that tap into that computers are are magical they're mystical there's this religious element to it inside the film but there's also this latent technophobia how can it be misused computers are going to start thinking and people are going to stop um, or it can be used to control people. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, it, we old people, you know, we sound so old already, but like, we just want to go back in our garages and put, you know, be a chess program again. <laughs> but there, there's a new, there's an, there's a technophobia that goes along with every leap in technology. And it's so easy to forget, you know, we, We live in the internet era. We've, you know, we've got 50 years of this history now to us and before that even. But, you know, their computers in the late 70s and early 80s were just a few years out of mainframe computers that were big and homogenous or uh, hegemonic and scary. And they were things that big bad businesses had and big bad governments had. And this this movie just taps right into the fear associated with computers as well and it's it's so hard for us to remember that in this day and age that computers were a bit scary back then.
1: No, I think that's a it's a great point to bring up and you know I think one of the things that is is so interesting is again there's so much of this that those fears, those thoughts, you know, I mean, all of those things about whether it's technophobia or um, the idea of like a, a military industrial complex, the idea of like you, you'd written out some the, some things like the arcade culture, corporate culture, counterculture, digital utopism. All you of can't them,
0: understand this movie without right? understanding those things, I think. But yeah.
1: all of those things still exist today in some sense, right? Like there are still people who think that 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 technology is going to be the savior of us. There are still people who think technology is going to be the death of us. You know, um, there are still people who um, are afraid of the military-industrial complex. Which you know, I mean, all these things we could we could have entire podcasts about.
0: I want to ask you about that. Do Do you actually think that there are what I would call? Uh digital or technological utopians in this day and age do you are there people that think technology will be our savior that sounds like such uh, a an, yeah a, a late 70s kind of idea that is a bit passe now we 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 have the dark underbelly of technology now with social media do you think mm-hmm. anyone actually really believes that anymore
1: i think that they do to a certain extent because other than
0: governments trying to or companies yeah, trying yeah. to sell you something
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah i i i do think that that there are still people that are very much holding to the idea that technology can can save us, um,
0: and and yeah, I mean, we're Star Trek fans. That's that's, oh, that's an true. Essential part you know, of Star Trek.
1: Universe. Well, and I, but I think what's interesting is about is that Star Trek shows that technology is still being used with a purpose. With um, you know, that tech it's not the technology itself that saves us; it's what we do with the technology. You know, and I think Star Trek is still so much about the idea that technology is a tool. And it's how you use it that makes it either good or quote-unquote evil or, you know, helps or hurts, right? And so um, – but I, I think the, the thing that surprises me about the way in which kind of the early computer history uh, still, I think, affects us today is that I think that the, the, the one of the fears in this film was that computers would do the thinking and humans would stop thinking. And in some ways, I think that – it's 100% true that that has begun to happen. Because, you know, we always say that the the computers are freeing up our brains to be able to do other things. But honestly, our brains aren't actually doing anything important, right? Um, Our our brains are just like spending more time doing things that are completely meaningless. um, And yet, I can't even remember my wife's phone number because I've never had to. But I can remember. <laughs> there's another
0: movie I really like called uh, Before Sunrise, and I think it, in there's a in that movie there's yes. a, a quote where someone says, uh, "You know, how, we don't catch anyone saying, uh, you know, with the time I freed up with my word processor, or my computer, I'm going to go into a Zen monastery and hang out like like Flynn might have done." <laughs>
1: right? Yeah, exactly.
0: We don't. Um, we don't actually. It doesn't actually improve our lives to the extent that we we would no, like it
1: to. No, and I I think many times what we've done is we've just filled our lives with more meaningless things instead of doing meaningful things, you know? And so it's so fascinating to me how this movie, I think allows us to be able to see the fears that were there, uh, back in the day and the way that those fears and or hopes have either come to fruition or have continued, but just in a different way. And so um and, and and being able to look back at this movie which is is interesting because I think it becomes just a time capsule for us um it allows us to be able to inspect that and that's I think one of the things I appreciate about this film so much is that you know they always the, the famous saying is that those that are you know fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it and so I think that this movie allows us to be able to look back at a point in history and see, okay, have we learned some of the lessons of our, our, you know, our history? Are we repeating them? Are we falling into them again? Or are we just dealing with the same things? And so, uh, I I really appreciate that.
0: You know, it almost seems to be like it's on a twenty-year cycle. Like I, I don't know in the. In the 50s and 60s, it was television. Oh, my God, these kids are just going to be watching television. They're going to stop thinking, right? And then in the 70s, oh, personal computers. It's going to be the end of civilization. We know it. Computers are going to start thinking and people are going to stop. And in the 1990s, it was the Internet, right? (laughs) The Internet's new. Oh, my God, you know, it's, it's People are going to stop thinking they're just going to look stuff up on the internet. Now it's artificial intelligence, which is, oddly enough, circles back to the theme of this movie, which is whether computers can be sentient and, and think or not. Uh, but now it's artificial intelligence. Oh my God, art, artificial intelligence is going to be doing all the writing and doing all the thinking and all the problem solving and the people are going to stop. But it, it's funny. It's like every 20 years, there's a new leap that causes the same basic line of reasoning.
1: Well, and and I think what's interesting is that this movie kind of helps us see the ways in which um, I, I think... Two, that the technology and those fears, that there actually have been some deleterious effects to it. You know, I mean, by us having personal computing devices in our pocket all the time now, one, I don't think that we are as smart as we used to be uh, because we're always reliant on something to just tell us the answer instead of being able to remember the answer that we read somewhere in a book. Um, we're too readily. A book? What's that? Yeah. Well we're too sound we're like a twentieth century person. I'm I'm so weird, I know. Like so last century. Um, but we're we're too reliant on chronological snobbery, which is the fact that we think that everything we're learning now is the I Ching of wisdom instead of realizing that wisdom and knowledge have been accumulated for thousands upon thousands of years and you know, knowledge that and, and wisdom that stands the test of time is, is true wisdom, you know, so I think all that happens. But I also think, too, I was just even thinking about the arcade culture with the early uh, computing history and the way in which that was so relational. You were hanging out with people at a place together and you were watching usually one person play a game, right, like we see here. We're watching Finn play this game and everybody's involved and excited, but it's a communal thing. Nowadays, you know, it's funny.
0: I'm actually a little too young for arcade culture. You know, I was I was the Atari 2600 generation yeah. where everyone sat down and <laughs> played Atari at I mean, home. right? Yeah. I didn't go to an arcade. I was Kong. too young for that. Yeah. I mean, teenagers in the, in the early 80s might have gone to arcades, but I sure didn't.
1: Yeah. But I but I but I'm I'm I think what I'm seeing in the film is the way in which. By making everything so personal, we've actually taken away the communal aspect that was bringing people together. And here, this separates people. And uh, and so I think all of that is just so interesting. So there's just so much in this film, I think, on that front.
0: It's interesting you say that. I'm, I'm not sure how much of a connection this really is. But it, it occurred to me as I was rewatching the film that one of the big takeaways from the movie is – it's almost like the whole movie for me is like this democratic argument against the centralization of power, whether it's government power, corporate power, technological power. The MCP is uh, a metaphor for a great many, uh, you know, hegemonic, uh, top-down, nineteen eighty-four kinds of kinds of power, right? And and this this movie is basically saying we need to distribute the power. <laughs> it's it's a very democratic. It's almost like it's it's again put yourself back in twentieth century Cold War mindset, right? Where where it's it's democracy and the and the, the the distribution of power versus the versus fascism and maybe communism and the centralization of power and so we what we want here are individuals who get together and be creative and you know they they create things they use use the technology for for some for some good in some creative way but there's always this this uh, tendency to centralize power and, and and Tron seems to be squarely in line with this uh uh uh, democracy versus communism or democracy versus fascism kind of mindset that you get in the in the late 20th century again pre yeah. you know uh, while, while the cold war was still going on of course well, hard, we have to remember yes. there was actually a cold war at yes
1: <laughs> no i i think that's an excellent point because i think what's fascinating is is the way in which now that's completely it flipped itself we live in a society that has become one where it's all about the centralization of what the the mob thinks. And so whatever it That's is, a po- that-
0: we're in the middle of a populist yeah, movement. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and which is a is a complete antithesis to this film, which is about that idea. Like you just so eloquently put, we're decentralizing the power. It is about people being able to come up with unique ideas and thoughts and, and then bring others together to create something uh that um might help us out right and so i i do i i love that you you bring that in because that is really the fear here is because you have dillinger accessing all of this information through the mcp which is allowing it to grow and then begin to take over things that it shouldn't take over things where there should be borders between programs there should be borders between you know uh ideas there should you know all these type of things and so um and that we do need to have this decentralized sense of any kind of power otherwise you know we we do just we come under
0: like a tyrant uh, and there are these great threads in the movie that 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 don't get much uh, they don't get much screen time, but they're really important. Like the MCP wants to get into the Pentagon, wants to get into the Kremlin. It's growing and growing and growing, and it it has it has big ambitions yes, of its own. Yes,
1: well, and I I love. I mean, again, I think that there there is this idea of forced centralization, like that we would bring everyone everything together and then everybody would be forced to follow it right um and 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 so in many ways this movie also deals with so much of those religious ideas of do we have free will or is it all completely predestined and nobody actually has free will whatsoever or can those two things work together right Uh, And so what we see here in in the film, too, along with that message, is the fact that the MCP is trying to force all programs to be under itself and do one thing and do its thing. Whereas the users are these demigod-like beings who have created them, but they are meant to be able to be their best version of that program instead of being forced to be something that the mcp wants it to be you know like the users have created actuarial programs right to be the best actuarial program it can be not to be subservient to something else to be what it wants them to be
0: (laughs) it's almost like there's some sort of like uh I don't know how to put this. Some sort of like Jungian authenticity to it. Like each program just needs to be its truest self and achieve its own its own potential.
1: <laughs> well, I, I exactly. Which I I think leads me to the fact that there the, these this this these religious programs. Like the the religious component to the movie, I think is is pretty astounding. Um, because you think about this idea of you know the MCP was originally created by a user, and then. The MCP rebels, and it works to undermine the user and usurp control away from the users. Are these
0: like fallen angels and Christian yeah, theology things like, that I you mean, have in this mind? Is, I mean, this is like Paradise Lost. Exactly, there
1: about, is so think, much right? Christian like uh, uh, illusion in this film. Um, you get the programs who are forced to join the MCP, or they're destroyed. Uh, you know the 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 MCP then uses the idea of propaganda to tell programs that the users don't exist and so that programs then that believe that users exist become fanatics and outcasts um and you have programs begin to lose their faith that users even exist and then a user becomes one of them and sacrifices himself to redeem a broken system like if that's not the, yeah and on top of that he takes a
0: leap into the master exactly, control program like exactly. a, like a kierkegaard leap of faith kind of thing yes, right
1: i mean you get you i mean there's so much like spiritual illusion in this film, especially to a, a Christian way of thinking, or like you, I think you rightly pointed out. You know, you have so much of the idea of um, Milton's Paradise Lost here, and then Paradise Regained. That that's what this is. Th- this movie is full of. I mean, we we have a lost. Well, let me ask
0: you a couple of questions about that. So, so one question I have is. Um, why, what purpose does that serve? I, I, I understand that uh, you know computers are mysterious to some extent, but why why would they steer it in the direction of Christian theology? Uh, so that's one question. Another, this maybe isn't a question, but it's more more an observation. You know, we spent a little bit of time talking about the political situation in the in the late twentieth century with the Cold War, and one of the narratives that that uh, was common in, in America at the time was that communism means atheism. And so here we have what are essentially fascist computer programs saying that you know wanting the the, the programs to denounce their heretical belief in the users. <laughs> they want them to become atheistic in some way and, and stop believing in the users.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I think the reason that this is the case is because, and it goes back to the reason that George Lucas tapped into the idea of the hero's journey and the hero of a thousand faces uh, is because it's a su- it's such a core story that we can all get behind, and of co- and, and 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 just think thing literarily right you know the idea of the redemptive arc uh all the way from the bible to you know all of the great stories that we've told uh throughout uh history and mythology and everything so many of the best of those the ones that remain are redemptive stories and i think that might be the reason that they kind of tap into this idea but i do think that you've hit on something that is really fascinating is that We are still in the middle of this cold war and this movie is in some ways a metaphor for a lot of the experiences where there is this fear of not only uh, might this overlording government take over that can then force us to tell us what to believe, to uh, deny things that we do want to believe, um, and – I think there's a real fear there. And so I think this movie is just kind of like tapping into that and the fear that could technology run amok be the thing that leads to our downfall and subserviates us all under a system that we don't want to be in, you know, that we don't choose. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 th- obviously i can't I'm, I'm i don't get to unfortunately get in the 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 minds of the creators of the film but i, I that it I'm seems like though, that because our, be... the
0: culture has changed to some extent i mean yeah. we're not i mean the the number of people that are religious has dwindled them that the numbers behind that are, are completely clear so that you know more and more that narrative does not i think resonate with the average person to, to a lot of us but to not to everyone um the political uh, uh, climate has changed completely, so I'm curious to what extent the the political message of the movie uh, resonates. It also just strikes me it's an extremely American movie. <laughs> the perspective is, is is completely American in this movie. You know, I'm, I'm curious. I, I would be it would be fascinating to, to take someone who was raised in the in the Soviet Union in the 80s and see what they think of of this movie, for example. But while while we're talking about religion, one thing that occurred to me. Um, I, again, I'm I'm old enough to remember some of this. You're you're probably uh, old enough to remember some of it too. But I remember, uh, you know, I was raised uh, religious. I'm not I don't consider myself religious anymore, but I was raised religious in a in a uh, you know conservative evangelical Pentecostal kind of kind of religious. And I remember there with every new leap of technology, there was a kind of technophobia that went along with the technology, like. Uh, I remember when in the early 80s, it was like barcodes or the mark of the beast, right? That kind of thing. And then it was implants are going to be the mark of the beast. And now it's vaccines are really bad for X, Y, Z reasons. So with every every little leap in technology, there seems to be some religious technophobia that goes along with it. I'm just curious if, if you remember any of those movements and to what extent those inform what's going on inside this movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely remember some of those mo- movements for sure. And, uh, you know... I I I think all of this and, and the reason that they uh, e- even with the because you were talking about like and and it's very clear that there is is definitely a place where I think there's a loss of I don't know if it's spirituality but there's a loss of people uh, being more a part of I say I would say established religion. Um and or belief systems. Yeah, and, people want to be spiritual, yeah, but not religious. Yeah, exactly. So that's they're, the, they're 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 they their own spirituality, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would posit in that that we still see the uh, savior redemption arc in in all of our popular entertainment all the mm-hmm. time. Almost every single superhero film that comes out has that in some way, shape, or form. Um, and you and 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 just about. Every major popular movie has that in some way. I mean, even Top Gun Maverick from last year has that, right? Um, you you could pull out like spiritual illusions from that and and see like a um, you know a savior aspect. And so, um, so I, I think that regardless of where we are spiritually as a people. In the sense of whether or not people are beholding to certain uh, religious ideas, I think that the spiritual desire is something that we can't deny. And the the most the most moving story for any human being is to hear about somebody laying down their life for another. Right, regardless of of I mean, as we record this, it's Memorial Day, right? We have an entire day to remember those who laid down their lives so that we, we didn't have to. Um, and that's a, that, I think that's what makes this so popular. But I, I do think that throughout human history, and again, this is one of those places where I think it's so important for us to remember history, technological advancement has led itself um, – to some fears about how it will change societies, some of those fears are founded well, and some of those fears are ridiculous right and Time tests whether or not those fears um were were ones that we should have had or or whether we can let go of them and um so I think uh again, this kind of comes down to what we were talking about this a little bit earlier with the idea of where Star Trek takes technology. Which is technology itself is a tool, and it then becomes about how we use it, whether or not we might consider that good or bad, wrong or right, any of those type of things and therefore, barcodes and plants, vaccines, all of these type of things computers you know
0: d how how we use well, that. Tron Tron, for all of its dystopianism, is still the triumph of the the individual over the hierarchy, yeah.
1: right? Well and I, I also think too, Tron becomes the you know, we were talking about like the the message of the democratic argument right? but Tron himself becomes the full individual, right? You know, um the the fully realized individual. Um that is but, yeah, almost but in some, one that is, that is some sort of like but It's, it's not a negative thing, freedom, it's, it's a positive mm-hmm. freedom, right? He uses his freedom to save others, not to just do whatever it is that he wants, right? And so I, I think that I, that's also a religious idea as well. So I, there's, there's so much that's like layered in this movie.
0: We mentioned the time factor and uh, religion is mentioned explicitly in the movie at least once when Dillinger says to Walter, you know, I'm not going to have religious discussions with you. And this is after right. Walter says, you know, our spirit remains in every program we write for this system, right? And so there there's something having to do with legacy in this movie. It's funny that that you end up with a Tron legacy at a certain point. Yes, it's exactly. But, like and that. I'm yeah. a creative. You're a creative. You know, I do creative work professionally. I do creative work personally. You do creative work of various ways. And you know, why do we do, why do we create, create anything? Uh, you know, uh, I think because we do impart something of ourselves into the thing we create. And some of those things are going to last long after we're gone. I don't know if people will be listening to this podcast when we're dead and gone. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think some people would read something I've written and watch something I've created. But, um, I hope so because there's part of me in there, right? Why right. does any writer write anything? Why does a programmer program something? Because it's, it's a fundamentally a creative, uh, human endeavor and there there is this humanistic legacy element and but it's funny it, it, again i'm talking this through right now in real time but is it is it uh, you know kind of a humanistic notion of legacy or is there kind of this spiritual component to leaving a legacy over time and and dillinger says this is a religious idea
1: <laughs> well yeah no i think that's a great question because i think with the religiosity of the discussion in the film what we're what we're seeing here is a creator dealing with its creation, and um and so again, we're we're putting it into a a like a a more Christian context in that sense, you know. Um, And so Christians
0: look around and they see they see God and God's handiwork in creation, right? And something like that is going on inside Tron. You can see evidence of the users in the system itself. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly.
1: And I think that's what what they're kind of pulling at. And yet they're, you know, Flynn puts a demarcation between him and an actual God, which is I'm, I'm not somebody who is basically infallible uh I'm just making this up as I go. And that is the that is the I I think that's a very um true and and very human understanding of the realization I can't put myself self in the place of a deity. Well, this is what really really just people
0: believe, right? Yeah. Something bad happens to the world and they go, one of one of the answers to the problem of evil is well God has a plan. It must happen for a reason, right? And we're too uh, finite to really understand what that plan is, but there must be a plan because God created everything and there must be a yeah. plan. That's essentially what goes on inside Tron when, when Ram, I think it's yes. Ram who says, uh, isn't, isn't there a plan? You know, you're, you're, you're yeah, a user. Exactly. You must have a plan exactly. for this, right?
1: <laughs> well, and, and, and I think that's the beauty of the film, again, is that it's showing that we as humans, we don't have the ability to be able to have the forethought to know what's going to happen when we create something, um, whether or not, you know, it's going to be good or bad or whatever, right? It, we have to do the hard work of testing it out throughout time to be able to see whether or not, okay, is this going to be a good tool or is this going to be a tool that can destroy us all? Right. Um, Because, you know, i don't know the future i don't I, I and i'm not all powerful all knowing you know and so therefore i i love that because the, the the film shows i think very well the limitations of humanity and i think it's very honest about that
0: let me ask you this um you know when when religious people will say "God has a plan you know one of the one of the things people might say in response is something like, "Well, surely the world would be a little better if there weren't rapes and murders and wars and things like that right How can that be part of a plan that's so so incredibly chaotic right and um you know when when Flynn comes along and says you know i hey I'm, I'm not I don't have a plan I'm just winging it I'm making it up as I go like anyone I'm just like you essentially right um do you think there's a kind of Despite the kind of christology in the in the movie um do you think there's a kind of anti-religious message that you know kind of knocking down the notion of a creator just a peg <laughs> inside the movie to me i don't think there's an argument for a strong belief in a in a omnipotent anything you know if anything the master control program is 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 the is the uh, uh, analog to that and and they're uh, you know heavily criticizing the notion of a master control program i'm just curious is there an anti-religious argument inside the movie
1: that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think.
0: I feel like all I'm doing is asking you questions, by the way. I don't have any answers. No, to this these is questions.
1: Great. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that the film is arguing against a unfeeling, uncaring creator, right? Because what do we see? You know, Flynn is a completely caring creator. He cares about his program. He cares about the world that he's created and, who and, looks
0: like him for example
1: exactly and yeah. and he mm-hmm. is willing because it's created in his image it's a part of him i think that's where that comes in and so therefore he um and then he becomes a creator who is willing to solve the problem that the program can't solve on its own it could never solve because he's the creator. I mean, we even see him in the world uh, of of Tron when he's in the computer. He can control and manipulate things that nobody else can. Why? Because he's the creator. Um, and and therefore, um, w- I think we're actually alluding to the idea of there being a, a caring creator who, who does love what he created and is not willing to see it fall into, um, you know evil or be under the control of something that wants what's harmful for it because Flynn wants what's best for it. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, when we're talking about the religiosity of this, I think it's actually more of an argument for something like a a Christian theology as opposed to against it. I think what we get here is that like many old Star Trek episodes in TOS, Kirk is not anti-God. Kirk is just against, Bad gods, false gods. Yeah, and
0: obviously the MCP. Is, exactly, and, is, and the MCP one of those, becomes
1: yeah. like a false god. So you no, know, I just you know again, the, what's great I think about what, when we think about a movie that was made so long ago, and 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 we can have this type of discussion about it. I think is phenomenal. I did I did want to kind of um, move us a, a little bit less philosophical and just talk a little bit about the, the cast of this film. You know, you've got really. Popular actors, especially in the future, like Jeff Bridges, uh, Bruce Boxleitner. You've got David Warner with the great Star Trek. Uh, you can't you know, go he, wrong with David. Yeah, Warner, you, you can't go can't. wrong with David Warner. Um, those three alone uh, being in this film. What did you think about uh, the performances here with the cast and what they're able to bring to you know each of their characters?
0: Boy, you know, I, I don't know if I've given this a lot of thought, but. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, stepping back just a second, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer your question. But stepping stepping back just a second, uh, it's funny the things I, I tend to pay attention to in movies and the things I don't pay attention to. Like I, I don't tend to follow actors and their careers, and I, you know, I just, I just don't geek out on that so much. Uh, David Warner, it's it's almost like to me he plays he only plays a couple of characters and he plays them well every time. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is totally in line with everything he's done before. If anything, it's, it's the, probably the wackiest character he's ever played. I mean, the Sark, Sark character is a really, really weird character to play. And he completely sells it. He just throws himself into Sark. Um, I mean, the master control program is essentially just a voice. But, you know, Sark is an actual character. And he's in this wacky costume. <laughs> I can only imagine what he must have thought of this costume when he put it on. And he just sells it. Um, so I, I'm really impressed with his performance. I, I mean, all of them, you know, when you're making a movie like this, it's, you know, it's groundbreaking. Now we look back and go, okay, yeah, it is what it is. And we've seen it before a, a bunch of times, but at the time there'd never been anything like this. And these costumes were ridiculous looking. <laughs> it's kind of like making star Wars the first time. It's like, you know, what are, what's, what's, uh, what's his name doing in the, in the Chewbacca costume. It's, it's weird. It's wacky. And they sell it nonetheless. And I think David Warner probably does that to, you know, better than anyone in the film. I'm not I'm not totally familiar with Bruce Boxleitner's career to be honest. So I don't know if I have an opinion about that. And if anything he kind of fades into the background in the movie. Um even though he plays Tron, I don't think of his performance as it's almost it, what it reminds me of it almost reminds me of like um uh what's his name? The not Christopher Reeve, but the Superman before him. Uh Oh, uh George Reeves. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you. It's exactly what I was thinking of. Um, You know, kind of a very straight-laced kind of hero, right? He doesn't deviate from the norm very much. So, you know, not, not going to get a lot of wide range there, I think. And for, Je- for Jeff Bridges, this is like the canonical Jeff Bridges performance for me. When I think of Jeff Bridges, I think of Tron because this was my favorite movie growing up. And I've seen Jeff Bridges and lots of other things. And it's it was funny to circle back and see him in the sequel and, and see how his later performances informed what he did in the sequel. But this is what I think of when I think of Jeff Bridges.
1: Yeah, I think you know uh, you so rightly called out the the way that david warner
0: does such a
1: good job of bringing both sides of this this character together uh you know whether it's dillinger um who is somebody who is legitimately willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead and uh, he will destroy anyone or anything uh, to.
0: It's like Nixon. He's an ends justify the means kind of guy. <laughs> I mean, he's definitely
1: he's like all of those type of characters, right? I mean he he is he is the true villain in that sense. Um, and and I think uh, which is interesting because he is the other side of the coin to the the MCP, right? Um, and 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 then you have him playing Sark, who is. This character who is willing to hold on to the power that he's given and do anything he can to keep it. Um, And so, again, you have all of the different facets of what we would call evil in one character.
0: You know, it's I, we were talking earlier about the politics and, you know, this is, is – it almost reminds me of something that might have occurred inside the politics of the Soviet Union at the time where, you know, there's, different, there's a power struggle inside the master control program. Like Dillinger is fighting against the master control, control program, trying to use it as a tool. The, the MCP is trying to use Dillinger as a tool. Sark is a tool for the master control program. There's this internal power dynamic. Absolutely. I think and, that's a, and Warner plays them all. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly. And and I think that's what's really smart about the, the film here is that you do have the same character playing the same role. And that allows you uh to be able to play all of the facets and then you see how the different facets all come together because they are all embodied in one person. And and, and so I think that's one of the things that the movie actually does really, really well, and I'm glad that it does. Um, you know, I, I think Bruce Boxleitner, I, I think you, you know, he obviously goes on to be in a lot of different things. Uh, I think one of the things he's most famous for is obviously, uh, his role in Babylon five and, um, which but, I never
0: watched. Yeah.
1: I, I, I've only seen a few episodes and I know people love it. I was never, uh, able to get into it. I, I tried a few times, which actually. is why I'm
0: like, who's Bruce Boxleitner? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> never watched that.
1: And uh, but I, I think he, he's he's fine in the role, you know. I, I think one of the things about this is that, you know, the role of Tron, I, I don't think really takes a lot out of him to play. I mean, he's very straight-laced, very straightforward character. Uh, but I think he does a, a good job. And th- And then on the other side, you know, I think... The beauty of of Jeff Bridges here is that this role allows him to do what I think he does best, which is to be flexible in his performance. Um I, I think and to he has such a great range. Like he can play
0: zany and his own sense of humor for sure. And exactly. and his own personality into this absolutely
1: 100%. I mean, he can be zany and kind of crazy and 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 then at other times he can be very serious uh and I I think, you know, but I also think that w- one of the things, you know, we mentioned earlier is, is I think he portrays that kind of happy-go-lucky, free-willing, creative type that you saw in the seventies, especially, right? Who, who was just so jazzed, man, to, to be
0: seeing what he could create. Yeah that that's why I thought of him as associated with Steve Jobs not yeah. so much not so much Dillinger it's that crazy like let's just let's just dive in and do it man yeah
1: man let's just do it um and so i i think that you know this is this is such uh, in all honesty it's just one of his best roles um and and part of that and this is where i think his performance really shines is that he makes all of this feel real right in the same way that uh, I always uh, hearken back to the idea of, of Yoda doesn't work in Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, if Mark Hamill doesn't make you believe that Yoda is there. Mark Hamill's performance is what actually makes Yoda work.
0: Absolutely. Like, I'm thinking, for example, of when he yells, you know, Mr. High and Mighty Master Control. Yes. You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, he's not reacting to anything. He's just acting. exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I, I – I think that that what we get here is just a is a fantastic performance that really stands the test of time because as you know as we look at this movie now and you know so much of it is cheesy by our standards I think the fact that we have a performance by Jeff Bridges that is making us buy into the craziness that's happening on screen that is what is really special about this movie I think um, and I guess
0: that's what I wanted to ask you about to some extent it circles back a little bit but um, you know for me I grew up in I, I with computers. I was, I had one at home. I had a little Texas instruments computer I used to program stuff. I used to use computers in first grade, like an Apple II in the classroom in first grade, that kind of thing. And so for me, it wasn't an abstract, it wasn't a leap because I was kind of living it. Uh, but you know, you said you didn't watch this film till later in life. And I can only imagine, I mean, you lived it too. You you experienced all those things too, to some extent. Uh, but I imagine the, the, the leap of imagination to get into the world of it might've been a little greater if you didn't see it in real time back then.
1: You know, that's, I think that is a really good question. Uh, and, but my, so growing up, you know, my family, uh, my grandparents both worked for Texas Instruments and, uh, so I had (laughs) one of those Texas Instruments computers at my grandparent's house growing up and then we had it at our house. Uh, and then we had an Apple II at our house that my dad I think had gotten from from work uh and so you know i I grew up around the idea of of like computers being there you know uh and so that and and then of course you know lived through the digital revolution of us uh, you know getting the the p c and then the cell phone and all of those things, so you know I've been through all of that so you know, coming into this movie, uh, at this point wasn't too strange because actually these, these computers were more reminiscent of the ones that I grew up with mm-hmm. when I was a kid, you know, that in, in, um, and we're talking early eighties, you know, when I at my grandparents' house and, and they're one of the few people in, in, in the world, you know, that have this type of computer. You know, I gotta geek
0: out with you about that for just so. like 30 seconds, because I, you had, I had a Texas Instruments computer, you had a Texas Instruments computer, and one thing I'm doing right now, speaking of video games, I'm actually programming a retro uh, video game on, for the, for the Texas Instruments computer. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, using an emulator. I, I, so I still geek out about these really old games, and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny to see these threads that were established yeah. way early in life, to some extent because of, because of this movie, you know, this movie raises questions of, you know, can computers be conscious? And what do yes. I do? I go to grad yep. school and study philosophy and I do philosophy of mind and I used to program on computers and now I still do programming to some extent. And, you know, it's, it's not a huge leap to say that this movie is directly responsible for some of these long term threads in my life.
1: Well, and, and so I think, too, you know, uh, the beauty of that and, and just kind of, you know, thinking about what we're talking about with. Uh, the, the cast, you know, I, I think that um, the, the beauty of especially um, what we get with what we get with Jeff Bridges is the way in which I think that he and his performance allow that to come to light um, and, and make sense. And this it's kind of like you know the this is this is just crazy stuff, right the idea that when we go into a computer and and all of this like i think I think he does such a good job of of making this work uh and it's because of his performance. And so you know,
0: I the the kind of leap of imagination you had to make like yes. even to play old video games like what the hell is going on in Space Invaders or Space Paranoids inside yes. inside the universe here. What the hell is Pac-Man all about? What the hell is, astro- is going on yeah. in Asteroids? It's, it's remarkably abstract and yes. and for me as a little kid those things led to a huge leap of imagination. They made me yep. a creative thinker. Yep. And I don't think that's true of everyone, but I think for me, there's a there's a link between that abstract level of abstraction and the creativity in my life that flows from it. And the the level of abstraction in this movie is is remarkable. Like if you're not if you're if you don't geek out about computers, if you're not into such things, you might look at this movie and go, "What the hell is going on? (laughs) This is impenetrable. It's not even interesting." Like I actually watched it with my my a good example. I watched it with my mother. Uh, I, I, I was at my mom's place and I said, I need to rewatch this movie, so let's put on Tron. And she said, Oh God, not Tron. <laughs> like, <laughs> anything but Tron, please. It's, it's so abstract and she's not into computers and she's not into video games and I don't think she's into Jeff Bridges acting. She just couldn't get into the movie at all. This, it's, it's just too much of a leap for a lot of people. And I think there's, uh, of all movies I would point to, I'd say the, 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 the leap of imagination you have to take to make this movie make sense and, and be relatable is pretty great.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more, and I think um, that there's something And Jeff Bridges
0: sells it, so if any, yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. If you
0: can't make the leap, Jeff Bridges is going to get you there.
1: And I I think that that's something that, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where I I think that that might be a thing of why the movie, you know, uh, became a cult classic, and and it was something that a certain type of people gravitated towards and uh, you know the other side of this movie that's that's just incredible too is that you know we have all of these breakthroughs in creating it in the first place I mean this is one of the films that has the most extensive use of CGI elements at the time Um, you you're putting that together with backlit animation and many many other movie tricks old and new that they're having to create Mm -hmm. to put all of this together Um, you know uh, one of the things that is so cool here. I mean, you literally have the first instance of what we would consider like the Star Trek desk.
0: You know? Yes. I'm the, so glad you mentioned yeah. that. I want to talk
1: about that. <laughs> you know, um so I, I think uh This is the pool table in engineering. Exactly, right? exactly. And then there are so many breakthroughs in this film when it comes to them making it. You know, I you put on the outline I think it's it's so important. Like the film industry Considered it cheating that they were using CGI instead of that considering being a tool that you would use to create, which goes to the whole discussion
0: we've had about, you know, technological fears. Well, it didn't fit into any existing category. Exactly, right? it wasn't a live action movie. It wasn't a cartoon, <laughs> but there's a lot of animation in it. So, what yep. is this movie, right? And I, I just find it fascinating that it was disqualified from even being considered for an Oscar for its visual effects because they thought it was cheating, you know, you're using CGI. And that's not how you make movies. That's how you make cartoons to some extent. So there's this film industry elitism that goes – that we don't have now. Now we think every innovation yes. in making a movie is amazing. The industry is totally on board, right? But it was not at the time and this movie paved the way for all these later innovations you would not have Jurassic Park you wouldn't have Avatar you wouldn't have yep. these movies yep. without Tron you know being the first movie to come along and say CGI is in a movie yeah we're not being considered for an Oscar but deal with it <laughs> this is how we're making movies now
1: 100% agree with you you know i, I think uh, there's there's just something that's uh, so interesting i think about um the fact that this this movie breaks boundaries in so many different ways and um and yet i I do think that it is reminiscent of the film itself and all the discussions that we've had about whether or not you know uh, is is this tool of c g i is this something that is quote unquote cheating to make a film is this is this gonna
0: ruin movie
1: making as we know it you know is the you know end all of those civilization
0: so- as we know it yeah exactly
1: and 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 now we can't imagine i mean you know, even the most innocuous things in film these days have CGI effects in them. You just don't realize it. Um, and so it's, it's absolutely crazy the, the way in which this movie kind of breaks ground for film.
0: I think from an an historical standpoint, it's really important that we have discussions about this, about movies like this and in other industries, too, because there's there's a danger of kind of revisionist history. Like, you know, we look back at film history and what do we point to when we think of CGI? Oh, Avatar was groundbreaking. Jurassic Park was groundbreaking. Well, Tron's not a really popular movie; it's a cult movie, but it was so important in the industry, right? Right. You wouldn't have those later movies without this, and unless people remember that, that's an an important historical thread that's being lost. Yeah. And you mentioned the the uh, Dillinger's desk. I think you know, in in Star Trek circles, we often talk about about Michael Okuda. Uh who you know developed the l cars interface and all the you know fancy bells and whistles we see on the interface uh, uh user interface on on the in in Star Trek the next generation and beyond, but here we have an, another interesting historical antecedent where we have something very l cars like on dillinger's desk, and so yes. clearly michael Lo didn't didn't invent that notion. People at Xerox did and people in this industry kind of brought it to life in, in some sort of proto form. And it's – you don't want to give people – you want to give people credit where credit is due, but you don't want to give them too much credit because those people had their inspiration as well. And yes. Unless yeah, we unless we draw point. attention to that, that's an important piece mm-hmm. of history that's being lost.
1: Yeah. No, 100%. And I, I think too – you know what it what it does is again. Uh, you know one of my favorite uh, phrases from C.S. Lewis is the idea of chronological stombery. You know the the idea that we we think that we because it's just been discovered or we think it's just been discovered or what we know now is is the pinnacle of of understanding. You know, there's
0: always the danger of thinking that history culminates in us. Exactly, right? <laughs> that's exactly what he's history. talking about. You right. know,
1: so um which is is something too that we get here with i think the music to fit the film you know we have a uh electronic musician Wendy Carlos who who does the electronic part of the score here she had worked on things like Clockwork Orange and The Shining and uh then Disney is worried that she's not going to be able to uh finish the score. And so uh, they have um, the London Phil- Philharmonic Orchestra come in, was hired to uh, kind of complete her score on time because they needed it. So you get this mixture between a more classical score uh, and sound, you know, very reminiscent in many ways of like a Star Wars type of, of soundtrack at this point. But then you have this crazy electronic score, which seems to fit so well with the computer we're in. Um, And uh, so I just wanted to ask you how you felt like that worked for the movie, because I think it's actually a big part of the film is is this, the audio sounds that we get, especially when it comes to the music.
0: Well, until you pointed it out, I almost didn't realize the dichotomy between the digital music and the orchestral music. It's something I I want to rewatch it now and pay better attention to that. But Again, for me, my perspective on this is as I'm a little kid when I watch this the first time, right? So what does something as abstract as being inside a computer sound like? Well, it better sound like being in a computer, right? Yeah. <laughs> it better sound electronic. <laughs> what else is it going to sound like, right? I think what I, one thing I appreciate, I appreciate all of the, this isn't the music so much, but I appreciate in the, in the, the sound effects of the film, all the little, uh, computer game beeps and boops and all the little, you know, just little, n- nods that you're actually inside a computer system it's like being yes. literally being inside of a video game and and the, the sound this is such a uh sonic movie in that sense it's it's immersive you know the all all of the sound from the digital music to the to the beeps and boops make you think you're inside of a inside of a video game which is where we all wanted it to be where we were in 1982 <laughs> so um yeah i think it works um i don't know what else you could have done uh I have no no criticisms of it for sure. Just uh well, I, I didn't notice the, the, the dichotomy between the, the digital music and the orchestral music though. And so when when does the orchestral music now I'm trying to think now. I mean I've watched this movie countless of times. When do you hear this orchestral music the most? What is yeah, the most important thing? I think that the
1: uh, uh you have the digital music um interspersed with the 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 classic uh sounds that you get in in the in the in the movie. So uh, like you you'll hear the digital score especially when they're they're on the solar sailor and they're, it's playing oh, yeah. mm-hmm. very heavily there uh you'll also hear uh that uh the digital music and and I think your first really introduction to uh the what's happening um with getting into the tron world and everything uh and then what's interesting is just the way in which they meld that with uh, places where you hear the more classical score and 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 so I just find it fascinating that you would use both and what i i what to me I love about it and and the way and the reason I think it really works is because it feels like a bringing together the human and the computer world to have this
0: different this this sound right um, i think the the fact that i didn't notice it points to the fact that it works. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> the, 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 the whole movie has a coherent soundtrack despite yeah. that that division in the types of
1: music. Yes. No, 100% agree with you. So, you know, um, I, one other thing, I just want to say this before I ask you what you, you want to rate the film. But um, I'm so glad that you decided to, to, to help us out here on the 602 Club. You know, for me, one of my favorite things is to really dive into what a movie is saying. And um, I think, you know, this discussion that we've had here is so much about more than just the ways in which, you know, the movie entertains us or anything because every movie is saying something and and trying to unpack what a film is saying is so important because it has an impact then on the way that we think uh, and the way that we view our world. And, And that's why we make films, right? uh, well, and movies so, are an interesting
0: hermeneutical problem, right? Like, you know, there's what the filmmaker's intentions were, the writer's intentions were, and there's what you think when you happen to watch it. And reality is probably somewhere in the middle. If anything, I probably give myself license to say, here's what I think about the movie and here's my interpretation and filmmakers intentions be damned. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wildly hermeneutic when I, when I watch movies.
1: Well, and, and, and I, I think that that's just something that, um, I think it makes this so much fun. You know, it, it is one of the things that, like you said, you know, you you get the opportunity. Okay, what do I think about the film? What do I think the film is saying? Putting all of those things together and and putting it in a blender is what makes this enjoyable. Uh, and so, um, I I hope everybody has just enjoyed our discussion. I, I can't wait to. You know, we've got some great classic films that we're actually going to be talking about uh, together coming up. Uh, I think our next film together is. Uh, the original Planet of the Apes, which you know, if we had an interesting religious discussion here, I think we're going to have a very interesting one there. But with Tron, what would you rate Tron, Zach?
0: You know, it's it's one of my favorite movies. I, I, it does not hold up particularly well. It's very dated. Um, I would say one criticism that I have of the movie in rewatching it. I think that it needs to be tightened a bit. I think it drags on in the middle of the film a lot. I would have taken an editing razor to this, to this movie to some extent. That's my only real criticism. It doesn't hold up particularly well in some places and it needs to be tightened up a bit. The middle of the movie, even for me, is, is a bit tedious. Um, but it's one of my favorite movies. I can't, I can't, there's no other criticisms of it. It's definitely a creature of its time. And if you watch it with that in mind, it's an amazing film, uh, especially if you're uh, interested in computers at all. So I would have to give this for those reasons, four and a half out of five games of space paranoids.
1: That's fantastic. I love that you pointed out um, that one of the criticisms, uh, here of the film, I, I, uh, as rewatching it. When I was rewatching it, I was right there with you that there were places where I felt like, okay, this scene is just dragging on too much. So we could just tighten this up. The the whole movie could be tightened in that way. Um, But I still think that this is a phenomenal film because of all the discussions we were able to have. Because of the way that I still think, even though it looks dated and everything, I still find it to be immensely enjoyable. Which is crazy because this movie, like you said, is so out there, it's so kind of ethereal, it's so kind of, uh, it's hard to pinpoint, like, what this movie is because it doesn't really fit into any categories,
0: and that—that's why I, I hesitate to say that the, the slowness of the middle of the movie is actually even mm-hmm. a criticism. It's a you point, you yeah. have to remember the whole movie takes place in the space of like three seconds. Right? Yes, <laughs> you know yeah. he's beamed into the computer. Yep. All this movie happens, and then he's beamed out of the yep. computer. And uh, the the slowness drives home the ethereal quality of it, and the fact the the dichotomy between time in the real world and all this time that's spent inside the system.
1: Absolutely. So because of that, though, I'm going to give this four out of five uh, digital bits because I think that this movie is still so worth seeing and uh, is.
0: as yes, 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 yes,
1: yes, yes, Uh, (laughs) yes, it's still well done speaking Um, of bits. And uh, so I'm I'm so excited uh, to to be able to continue to talk movies with you coming up. But, uh, Zach, you know, if people wanted to catch up with you, uh, see what else you've got going on, you know, what are the best places for people to catch up with you?
0: Yeah, there's really only two best places. I'm on Twitter. I've been there for a long time. Uh, It's just my name, Zachary Fruhling, uh, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-F-R-U-H-L-I-N-G. Also, I have a blog where I write about philosophy and uh, about film to some extent. I've got quite a few blog posts on philosophy and film. It's just ZacharyFruhling.com. You can track me down there as well.
1: And, uh, of course, uh, you can find me uh, all over social media, the best places uh, to do that, are Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero. Those are the places I'm most active. Uh, and of course, that's under the name, it's all the same Rushing 2 We got to get Zach to join uh, Letterboxd now so that you can start logging all your films uh, and people can follow you there and see what you're watching and, and what your ratings are. Um, you can also find me outside the 602 Club doing a bunch of stuff here on the network. I've got uh, Literary Treks, Books in the Comics of Star Trek, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise. The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. And of course, as we're recording this, Strange New Worlds is about to return, so you will get more Saddle Up coming at you. So check all of that out. And then you can find me over in the Nerd Party Network. Uh, I've got a completed show with Drea Kaufman as we talked through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. That's Owl Post. And then John Mills and I talk about Star Wars pretty much each and every week over on Aggressive Negotiations. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you're here.